And we are on chapter 26 of our confession. 26, and the topic is the church. And this is one of the longer uh, chapters in the confession. So this will take us a couple of weeks to get through. So chapter 26, and we're going to do the first two paragraphs uh, this afternoon. <clears throat> but before we do, let's pray, and then we will begin, begin our study. Father, we thank you uh, again for the time to be together today, Lord, to gather with your people, Lord, to hear from your word, and Lord, we do thank you that, Lord, you have caused your word to abound among us, Lord, that we have access to it, Lord, we have regular uh, meetings and, and teachings, Lord, that come from your word, and Lord, we do pray that we would continue in these ways, Lord, that we would not get tired of the simple teaching of the word of Christ, but Lord, that we would long for it more and more, Lord, that we would taste and see that you are good and that our desire and our tasting of you would cause us to hunger more and more after righteousness, Lord, that we might uh, desire more of you each and every day. So Lord, bless our time this afternoon as we study about the church, and Lord, we thank you that uh, you are the one who has established your church, and Lord, you are building up your people uh, throughout all generations, and Lord, we thank you that we are a part of this great work of God, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so <clears throat> we are on chapter 26, paragraph 1. And uh, we are dealing with the topic of the church, of the church, what it is, what it isn't, right, what it consists of, and then how it should be ruled and the proper ordering uh, that takes place in the church. So there's many various issues that will come up in this chapter, and we'll just deal with them as we go along. But we'll do the first two paragraphs today, the first two today. And this goes in well with Resurrection uh, Sunday because... The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the basis for our salvation, our redemption, not only does it save us from our sins, of course, but it causes us to be a part of a new race of man. This goes back to what we talked about uh, Friday night from Romans chapter 5, uh, that there he was comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ as the heads of people, of, of men. Right, that everyone who is in Adam is dead, right? That through his trespass, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. But then those who are in Christ, they have life, righteousness, the grace of God comes to them, and it overturns uh, what happened in Adam, right? In that we need to be in Christ, and we enter into Christ by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, and through the gift of faith. But whenever we partake of Christ, we also become a part of his people or his flock, as we were talking about this morning from Ezekiel 34 and also John chapter 10, and then our, our own passage, which he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And that isn't just us individually, but us collectively, as a church, as a body, that whenever we believe, we become a part of the body of Christ. So not only are we now united to Christ by faith, but also to one another, because we all share in a common faith and in a common salvation. And when this takes place, God puts us within the church, within the body of Christ, and much of our Christian life in this world 
is experienced and lived out within the context of the body of Christ as we love one another, as Christ has loved us. How can we love God if we don't love our brother? Right? How can we love Christ without loving his body? So it's impossible to love the head without also loving the body. And it's impossible to love the shepherd without also loving the other sheep and being a part of them and being in the flock with them. So this ties into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can almost say that every doctrine in the Bible and every uh, commandment in the Bible relates in some way to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, as if there is a unity in the Bible and the content uh, that is found therein. And certainly this topic of the church relates to the, the fruit or the outcome of salvation. This is one of the fruits or outcomes is that we are put together within the church or the body of Christ, and the term church is just a word that we use to describe the believers, right? The believers that are bound together, that are united together, this can be spoken of universally, or it can be spoken of particularly of particular bodies, and that's what we'll be talking about today. The first paragraph talks about the universal church, and then the second one with particular local congregations. Okay, so chapter 26, paragraph 1. The Catholic, that is universal church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here, they're talking in this paragraph about the Catholic or universal church. When they use the word Catholic here, of course, they don't mean it Roman Catholic. They don't mean it in that sense. They're meaning it in the sense of universal. And the term Catholic is a transliteration of a Greek word and a Latin word that means simply universal, the universal church. And this is the full number of the elect who will ever be saved by Christ. The full body of Christ from Adam to the end of the world are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, right? The true congregation, the assembly of the righteous, the multitude that no one can number, right? This is the church, all of those who have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the beginning of time till the end of time, all of them are a part of the body of Christ. And so in this way, the church is universal. And right now in the earth, there is the universal church, which is all believers, all true believers in the whole world are a part of the church in this universal, invisible way. Even though many of them, most of them, we've never met, we've never, we don't know them, right? We, we haven't recognized them in, in any way, shape, or form, and they don't know us, and we don't meet with them regularly because some of them may be in China or India or some other part of the world, and we'll never go there. Many of us will never be in those places yet. That doesn't mean that there's not believers there, such as have been saved by Christ. Through true faith, true repentance, they are a part of the universal church. And so in this way, the church can be called Catholic. It is invisible in the sense of the internal work of the Spirit and the truth of grace. So it is all true believers, right, who truly have the Spirit of Christ within them and the grace of God has been conferred on their life. They say it consists of the full number of the elect, 
who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The full number of the elect. All of those, right, there is a definite number of people who have been given to Christ from the Father. These are the ones that Jesus has come. He has given his life for their salvation, and all of them will be in due time by the Spirit of God called into the flock of Christ. Right? In our natural state, the elect are like we mentioned this morning. They are straying like sheep. Right? They are straying, they are in the wilderness, but in due time, by the Spirit, Christ will call them out of the wilderness back into the fold, and they will come under His care. He does this through the Spirit and through the Word. The Spirit of Christ, using the Word of Christ, to produce and to bring about the child of God. And he uses his word to call the elect out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ. To call the straying sheep out of the wilderness to come back to the fold where they then live under the rule and care protection of the good shepherd. And the flock of Christ or the fold of Christ consists of all believers, all true believers who ever have been So this would be Adam, Abel, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of the righteous, all of the Christians of the Old Testament are a part of the church, the church of Jesus Christ or the body of Christ. Old Testament Christians are not in a separate body. They're not a part of Israel. And then now we have the church in the New Testament age. This isn't the way it is. Everyone who has ever been saved and ever will be saved is a part of the same body of Christ and all of them have been saved through the same sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and through the same means, which is faith and repentance. All of them saved the same way and all put in the same body, all have Christ as their head. And this is true either before our time during our time, after our time, whether it's in America or whether it's in any other part of the world. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church can also be called the bride of Christ. It's called the body of Christ. It's also called the building of God. Whatever metaphor, analogy, term you want to use, if it's referring to the elect and the believers, then it's talking about the church. And in, sometimes it's called the assembly of the righteous, the congregation of the upright. It can be called the church, also can be called the Israel of God, the true Israel of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. All of these are different ways the Bible uses to refer to the body of Christ, the body of believers from Adam until the end of the world. Okay, a couple of passages. First, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12:22 says, "But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God." the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. So here, when he's talking to the church about what we're doing when we worship God and when we draw near to God, right? when we gather together and draw near to God in this outward way, what is happening in an invisible spiritual way? Right? Where are we going whenever we draw near and cry out to God? Well, we're drawing near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And there are innumerable angels there in festal gatherings. And there's the assembly of the firstborn who is enrolled in heaven. And there God resides, who is the judge of all. And the spirits of the righteous made perfect, they are there as well. In Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So when we draw near to God, this is what we're drawing near to. To all of these things, and he's telling them, this is why you better fear. You better fear have proper reverence, fear and trembling before God, and take it seriously, right? Don't shrink back and don't take this lightly, but be very serious. And one of the groups that we're drawing near to is the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, whose spirits would he be talking about? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Shem, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, these people. And then even at this point, whatever saints had died during the time of Christ, Zechariah, Elizabeth, uh, others like that, uh, uh, Anna, uh, who would be dead by this time, and others, uh, that Simeon who came and Jesus was presented to him in his childhood, all of them would be dead at this time. And then even some of the holy apostles would be dead at this time. James would be dead at this time, and maybe others as well. Well, those are there. And right, you notice that it's not two distinct groups. It's the same group, right? The spirits of the righteous made perfect, whether before the coming of Christ or after the coming of Christ, whether before the day of Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost, it doesn't matter. You're drawing near to the same people, to the same God, to the same angels, right? To the same mediator who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that, everything, that in everything He might be preeminent. So there, speaking of Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were created, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together. And here he is the head of the body that is the church. The church is his body and he is the head of that body, the preeminent one of the body of believers which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. So he is the source of life for all of those who have died and who have the hope of resurrection, which is true of Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians. All have Christ as their head. He is the head of all believers. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there, the purpose of God, this plan of God, is to unite all things in Christ, whether in heaven or on earth. Well, that means he has to be the preeminent one. He has to be the head over everything. So there can't be these different, two different peoples of God, as some people, many people believe and teach. Israel in the Old Testament, that is the wife of God the Father, and the church in the New Testament, that is the bride of Christ. That's not the case at all. Because God's purpose is for Christ to have supremacy to unite all things in heaven and earth under Christ, that he would be the head over all. Also, verses 22 and 23. says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God has put everything under the feet of Christ, and then made him head over the church. So it's for the benefit of the church. This is why God has subjected everything to Christ. Ultimately, it's going to be for the salvation, for the benefit of his people, of his church, because he's going to bring many sons to glory with him. This is what he's going to do. And the church is called his body. His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, also Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." So here, when giving these instructions to husbands and wives and how they are to relate to one another, he's using Christ as the example of his love for the church and the church as the example of rightful submission to Christ because Christ is the head of the church. He is the head and the church is his body. Then the church ought to submit to the head in everything. This is the way that it ought to be. And this is why He is called the head of the church. Christ loves his church. He gave himself up up for his church. 
that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by washing of water with the word. This is God's purpose in Christ. He gave Christ for the sake of the church in order to purify us from all of our sin so that we might be a pure, spotless, a virgin bride for his son Christ. Right? We're not that way in our natural state. We're like a brazen prostitute in our natural state. But through redemption, we are purified so that we become a pure bride for Christ and then he will be married to him spiritually This is the way it is now and for all eternity. Okay, another passage for us to consider, a couple. Hebrews 11. These are not uh, in the confession, but I added these uh, for the purpose of showing that there is not two different groups or peoples of God. Now, this is common in dispensationalism, which teaches that the Old Testament was about physical Israel. And then that was the case. God's purpose for the world was for Israel. And then from the day of Pentecost, now it's about the church. And then one day it'll go back to being about Israel. And so they really divide the Bible up into these different groups. There's God's purpose for Israel, and then there's God's purpose for the church. And they separate these two groups of people but that's not uh, consistent with the biblical teaching. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. Here we know in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter on faith, where he's using all of these examples from the Old Testament of men and women who had faith, setting them before us as an example that we might follow in their footsteps. But notice what he says in verse 39. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here, in commending to us the saints of the Old Testament, he's showing us their faith. So their salvation came not through their works, but their salvation came through faith. And he's showing, manifesting their faith throughout chapter 11, by the way that their faith was seen, right? It was seen in all of these different ways. So they're commended through faith. However, they did not receive what was promised. They died without receiving what it is that God had promised them because they were not looking for earthly, temporal blessings. They were looking for eternal, heavenly, spiritual blessings. That is what was the object of their faith. But notice, they didn't receive what was promised, Because God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So when will their perfection be completed? When ours is completed, right? One and the same. So it's not separate from us, right? And Hebrews is written after the day of Pentecost. All of the people that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, they all lived before the day of Pentecost, but they're not going to be made perfect without us but we're going to be made perfect at one and the same time. And when is that time? 
the day of Christ. When Christ returns, we will all be made perfect together. So not one thing for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jews, and then another thing for the Gentiles and the Christians, but all true believers from Adam to the end of the world will be made perfect, will enter into the full consummation of their salvation on the day of Christ. Because we're all part of the same body. We're part of the same salvation and the same group. And they're the cloud of witnesses for us that we need to follow in their footsteps. Also, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And verse 10. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. It says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, is this happening before or after the day of Pentecost? Before the day of Pentecost, okay? So this is before Pentecost. And yet here Jesus is marveling because in this Gentile centurion, he has found greater faith than any of the men of Israel, than any of the Israelites. And then he says this, Truly I tell you, uh, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So many will come from east and west. And who are the many from east and west? It's the Gentiles. This is the Gentiles, which the gospel goes to after the day of Pentecost. But notice, when they come and recline in the kingdom of God, who are they reclining with? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're not reclining with Gentiles and then the Jews have their own thing going on. They're all, part of, they're all in the same kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ. Because all of them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those from the east and west, and this centurion, they're all being saved in the same way. And that is through faith in Christ. And they're all a part of the same body, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Then one last passage, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7. Verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne in worship, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory, blessing and, glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this great multitude that no one could number... This multitude is the church. This is the full gathering of believers in the kingdom of God. A multitude no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Jews and Gentiles together in the kingdom of God, worshiping God, and all proclaiming that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. To the one on the throne, the Father, 
and to the Lamb. This is the full number of the elect gathered there in the kingdom of God. Okay, paragraph number two. So paragraph one is talking about universal, invisible, internal, but what is invisible and internal will be manifested visibly and externally. And that is going to happen in this world in local assemblies, local congregations, where believers who are in close proximity to one another will meet together to worship God, to study the Bible, to pray for one another, to be in fellowship and communion with one another, and encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, in that we should not only be a part of the universal church, but also a part of local assemblies or local congregations where we meet regularly to worship God and encourage one another in our faith, which is what we're doing right now. Okay, paragraph two. All people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints. As long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living, all local congregations ought to be made up of these. So everyone in the world who professes faith in the gospel in obedience to God through Christ in keeping with that gospel, they have the right to be called children of God or to be called visible saints, that they are believers, they are Christians, and they should be and can be identified as believers, as Christians, as followers of the way, whatever uh, word we want to use from the Bible to describe them, then they should be identified and described in that way. When one makes a good profession of faith, and then that profession of faith is accompanied by obedience to God, then this is proof that this individual is indeed a part of the church, that he is a saint, a believer, one who has been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. And that person should be called a saint or should be called a Christian or a member of the household of faith so long as he does not destroy his profession by any foundational errors, by heresy, by believing or denying doctrines that are found in the Word of God. So again, there are many people who would claim to be Christians, but their doctrine is rotten. It's rancid. One good example would be Roman Catholics, okay? Roman Catholics claim to be Christians, but their doctrine is, it stinks. It stinks to high heaven. It's no good. They have many foundational errors that would disqualify them from being a true part of the church. So they can say that they're saints, but they're not really saints, right? They're not, they don't really hold to that. And this would be true of many others as well. Many other denominations, many other groups of churches, right? Whatever it is that they say that they are, they can claim to be Christians, but if their doctrine, if their body of faith is no good, if it's not consistent with the word of God, then they are ruining their profession by their unsound doctrine. And how many doctrines does it take for someone to be rotten? Just one, right? Just one. If you're wrong on one area, if you're right on many areas, but you're wrong in one area, then that one falsehood is enough to destroy the whole thing. Isn't that 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven? Leavens the whole lump, right? A little heresy ruins everything, right? The dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs much wisdom and honor. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Now, this is the opposite of what people commonly want to do today. What people want to do today is they want to excuse a little bit of error, a little bit of falsehood, a little bit of heresy, because on all of these other areas, he's really good and he does what's right. Yeah, I don't agree with him on this, but in all these other areas, he's right. But that's not the way the Bible teaches. The Bible says a little bit of folly outweighs much wisdom and honor. So a little bit of heresy outweighs and overturns whatever good is there. Right? And we remember that even the Pharisees were right on some things. Right? In contrast to the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the Spirit. But the Sadducees denied all those things. So were the Pharisees more sound in their doctrine than the Sadducees? Well, at least on the resurrection they were, and at least on angels they were, and at least on the spirit they were. They were better than the Sadducees. But does that mean the Pharisees are good teachers? No, because on other areas, they were hypocrites and they were wrong. So when a person ruins their profession by false doctrine, then they don't have a right to call themselves a child of God, though they're going to keep doing that. But we should not recognize and identify them as a saint or as a child of God. This is where we have to exercise discernment. Or, he says, by unholy living. Unholy living. If we live ungodly lives, if we begin to commit some sin, practicing a sin, then we are ruining our profession and we're proving that whatever we say about our faith, that it's no good. Because the unholy living is contradicting what it is that we're claiming and proclaiming to be. Now again, they're not talking about perfectionism here. Because we know that no one is perfect. But when there is practicing of sin, practicing of sin in such a way, then it's proving that this person, whatever they may say about their faith, it's not legitimate. And so at that point we would say that person is not a saint. That it's not, they're not a saint. Okay, then all local congregations ought to be made up of these. That is, people who profess faith in Christ, who have good doctrine, and who are living godly lives. This is what the local assembly or local congregation should be made up of these people who are meeting regularly together in the church, right? As the body of Christ, and it is our duty to protect the purity, to preserve the purity of the church so that as best we can, those who are associating and gathering together are indeed true saints, true believers, those who are wanting to live a godly life. And again, this is important because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If there is an ungodly or an unholy person among us, then that unholiness isn't going to stay contained within that one person, but what's it going to do? It's going to spread like gangrene, and that's why it has to be excised. It has to be excised so that that doesn't happen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So here, 
he's writing this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth. So in Corinth, there is an assembly, a congregation of saints who are gathering together under the name of Christ to worship God and to practice the Christian life together. And this is who he's writing this letter to, to the church of God in Corinth. And notice he says that they are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So they're believers called to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. So yes, you are the church in Corinth. You're calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're doing so in unison with who else? Everyone else whether in Corinth or Rome or Thessalonica or Galatia or Ephesus, wherever they're at, all of the saints in all of these cities, they're calling on the Lord in the same way. So they are a part of the universal church, that's what he's saying, but they're also a part of this local assembly that he's addressing in this letter. And here as well, we know that they cannot mean perfectionism. The apostle doesn't mean perfectionism. Because this church that he's addressing, the whole letter is, a, he's criticizing them because of their errors. And he's calling them to repent, right? Calling them to repent. Now, if they don't repent, then we would say that they're not saints. At this point, he's still addressing them as saints because he's confronting their sin. And he's going to correct them, but his expectation is for them to prove that they are saints and that they are being sanctified by the Spirit through repentance, that they would repent of the sins that he addresses to them. Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 and verse 26. Actually, we'll start in verse 25. It says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here, before this time, most Christians or believers were said to be followers of the way, that they followed the way. Here is when they first began to be called Christians. But whether they're called Christians or followers of the way or children of God or believers, who are we talking about? We're talking about the church. We're talking about those who have professed faith in Christ, right? Who are true believers in Jesus Christ. And here they're identified by calling them Christians. This is how they are identified by others and how they identify themselves. That I am a Christian in contrast to a Muslim or to a Hindu, or to a Buddhist, or to a pagan, whatever it is, this is how they're identifying themselves as Christians. And this is necessary for us to do as well. But to also define that, what do we mean by Christian? Because again, in our day, everyone says that they're a Christian. But what do you mean by Christian, right? What does that mean? And that's why we try as best we can to have some definition up front this is why we have the name Christ Reformed Church, so that people know up front when we're calling ourselves a church, this is what we mean. We mean these doctrines are essential to believe and that we believe those things and we want others to believe them as well. Okay, Romans chapter 1. 
Romans 1, verse 7. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, this letter is to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So all in Rome who are Christians or who are true believers. So there you see that in Rome, there was a meeting, a congregation of people who gathered together and they were meeting together as a church or as an assembly there in Rome and this is who he's addressing with this letter. Then also Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, which we read earlier, but we'll read it again here. And verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he is the head of the body of the church universally, but then also in these particular congregations. He is the head. He is the one that we are called to follow, which is why in the church, the most important thing that takes place is the public reading and exhortation of Scripture. Everything must be based upon the Word of God because the Word of God is the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ, our shepherd, comes to us through the Word of God. He calls us, and then we follow Him. This is how He exercises His rule, His authority, His dominion over His church. It is through His Word. And that explains why the majority of churches today are in such a wicked and sickly state because most churches, what do you find very little of? They don't teach the Bible. They're not reading the Bible. They're not teaching the Bible. They're not doing those things. They're not taking it seriously. Most of the pastors are promoting themselves, talking about themselves, their dog, their hobbies, whatever it is they like, the movies, the books that they've read, playing movie clips. They do all sorts of nonsense in these churches. It's happening everywhere. But they're not taking the Word of God seriously. They're not committed to seriously teaching the Word of God and following and obeying everything that it says. But how can we follow Christ if His Word is not among us, if it's not being proclaimed in our midst? That has to be the case. So this is why the church gathers. We gather to hear from Christ, to hear from Him, and our worship is seen not just when we sing. Now we ought to sing. But even now, what are we singing? We're singing the Word of God. We're singing the Psalms, which come from the Scriptures, from the Holy Spirit of God. But we worship God not only when we sing, but also when we hear the Word of the Lord. When we listen to the Word of God, the way that we respond to that, the attitude that we have, reveals whether or not we love God. And it is an act of worship and devotion the way we hear the Word of Christ. We need to do so with diligence to hear from God so that we can be quick to obey. So this is then the local congregation made up of the saints in whatever region they are where they can associate together, 
However that happens, this is what should be happening. And typically it's according to location, right? Because it's not feasible to drive 10 hours in order to go to church. Now, it may be necessary sometimes, but it's not feasible. So typically, it's in proximity to an area, to a region, where people can meet together regularly and do those kinds of things. And as best we can, the church that meets here, the local a congregation or assembly that meets here, should consist of true believers to the best of our ability. Now, again, we can't do that perfectly. We just have to do the best that we can. So when we have people enter into the church, we have to examine them. We have to test them to see what they are like, to see if they are like-minded and if they are like us and if they're humble and teachable. And so we admit people based upon that. But then there's also the necessity of discipline so that if someone proves at a later time that they're not one of us, then they can be removed from us to preserve and protect the purity of the church. So there must be examination on the front end, and then there's discipline, which is the back door to, to throw people out. And in this way, we seek to protect the purity of the church. And another good way that we can do this is by long sermons, okay? Long sermons. Because most people, they're going to run for the hills, right? They hate those long sermons. And good doctrine, right? Good doctrine and be very clear about these things up front so that everyone knows Right? We want most people to go to our website and look through those things and go, these people are nuts. Right? I'm not even going to visit that place or consider it. Right? That's how most people will be, and that's fine. Right? If that's what they think, then they can go somewhere else right? because we're not going to change who we are and what we do to accommodate people. We're going to align what we are and who, what we do to the Word of God. And if people want that, then that's who we want. And if they don't want that, then they can go somewhere else. They can go somewhere else, but that's the way that we have to be. Okay, one last passage, and then we'll be done, which is Psalm 22. I thought of this this morning. Because um, we were reading Psalm 16, and Psalm 22 is another um, psalm that is predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glory that follows. But notice Psalm 22, verse 22. This is after the resurrection. It says of Jesus, that I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Right? Congregation. The congregation is the church. In the midst of the church or the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And who is this congregation? It's his brothers. And who are his brothers? Those that he brings to glory. Those that he has died for. So here, Psalm 22 is teaching the church or the congregation that has been redeemed through the death and resurrection of Christ. Then also, chapter 22, verse 25. says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. So here, Christ also speaking that he is praising God the Father before the great congregation. And this great congregation is the same as we read earlier in Revelation chapter 7. This multitude that no one can number from the whole world. They are the ones who are there and Christ is praising the Father 
before them and leading them to praise the Father as well and performing his vows before all those who fear him. So here's an example of the assembly of the righteous or the congregation of the upright being taught all the way in the Old Testament. And this is speaking of Christ, who is the head of the church. Okay, so we will stop there for today and pray, and then we will be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you have brought into this world through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have sent him from heaven and that he has come to this earth. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He's been raised for our justification. Even now he has ascended and is sitting at your right hand, waiting for the days in which you make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And Lord, we know that one day he will come again and he will take his people, his bride, to heaven to be with him and that we will be with you for all eternity and that you will wipe every tear from our eye and there will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, but we will always be in your presence for all time, Lord, for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for this salvation. And Lord, we thank you that now, even in this life, Lord, you have bound us together with the church, Lord, with other believers. That, Lord, you do not call us to live the Christian life on our own, Lord, but to be united together with fellow saints, that we might be an encouragement and help to each other, Lord, as we are strangers and sojourners in this present age. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bind not only our hearts to you, but that you would also bind our hearts one to another, and that, Lord, we would love each other as Christ has loved the church, Lord, that we would care for one another and that we would have a desire to be together, Lord, and to worship you with one another. Lord, seeing that this is what we will do for all eternity. Lord, how can we despise those people that we are going to spend eternity with? It is impossible. And so, Lord, we pray that what we will do for all eternity would begin now amongst your body. Lord, your people gathering together to love one another and to love you. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to sanctify the rest of our Lord's Day. Lord, to focus on you and to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you give us safety as we travel home. Be with us this week. Lord, may we walk with you and do those things that are pleasing to you. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us back together again. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.